so what what we've been doing over the last few months you talk about uh, first part of the Eightfold Path which was right understanding which means that we have the Four Noble Truths and uh, Dependent Origination and uh, Five Aggregates and the Three Characteristics and uh, in several different ways from several different directions and with this last weekend with the teaching retreat this last weekend I, we, we pretty much we're, we're coming to the end of that part of the cycle so we'll now move on to the other seven of the, of the Eightfold Path. Um, right, right intention or right motivation is the next one. And then we'll come to uh, the, uh, the virtue, which is right, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then we'll kind of close the loop, coming back to meditation and, and talking about it in a much Deeper way now that we've covered once we've covered all this other stuff, and now we've we've had a pretty thorough discussion of the Dharma. So that's where we're at. So tonight is really the opportunity to, or, or as I had envisioned it, to tidy up any loose ends to do with with uh, the Dharma before we get into all these other things are really practice, and so. As far as the information part of it, all the intellectual understanding that will eventually mature into transcendental wisdom. Uh, that's the topic we're on, and that's what we're finishing up tonight. So, in the last Thursday evening session before this weekend, uh, we talked a little bit about karma and uh, a little bit about intention. Well, the last two we talked about karma, and then we talked about intention. The Buddha had defined, redefined karma as intention. And then we talked about that a fair bit more last Sunday, but I know a lot of you weren't here. So basically, I'm, I'm ready to go over any aspect of this dharma that you feel like you'd like to hear more about or get clarification on. Could you give me like a three sentence? <laughs> a three sentence thing of the Dharma? <laughs> Just so I have like a base. <laughs> it goes something like this. <laughs> can't, can't do it in three sentences. I'm sure. No, I'm, I'm just but, some context. But, um, uh, in, 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 in this life, Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Uh -huh. And suffering is caused by craving. And uh, elimination of craving means the, the elimination of suffering. The craving is rooted in ignorance. So, uh, so we need to overcome ignorance and delusion in order to rid ourselves of the craving and become uh, perfectly blissfully happy, uh, compassionate uh, human beings. Uh, living in uh, nirvana rather than samsara. <laughs> and the way to get there is through <laughs> right understanding, through right, uh, right motivation, right speech, right action, right livelihood, uh, right effort, uh, right concentration, and right mindfulness. Wow. Uh, one sentence. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's very good. Thank you. So today we're focused on right in motivation. Well, we're going to we're going to that's going to be the next new topic that we take up. Okay. But the reason today we're kind of tidying up everything that I just said. <laughs> I think, yeah. Okay. Great. I have a question to last Thursday. You talked about intentional karma and versus habitual karma, and you said that we are born with um, ver the, the, the um, uh, um, what is it? The, the aggregates. Um, it's gone. No, I mean, I mean the, the aversion and the and the the attraction. The aversion. We, we, we are born with that, and it's just condition to our growing up. And I was wondering, playing here a little bit devil's advocate, where does it come from? Who gave us that when it's inborn? Isn't that something we fight human nature? Isn't it something like almost like uh, original sin we have to redeem from? That's that's yeah. my question. Yeah, that's so that, that is a very interesting comparison. We, we, we're born. We're born in a state of, of ignorance. And uh, that ignorance becomes delusion. We're also born with a predisposition to to craving, mm -hmm. you know. And we don't we don't choose that, and we don't make that happen. Every human being that's that's born, because of the way the human, uh, because of human nature, because of the way a human being is uh, constituted mentally, we are going to gravitate towards this basic delusion and we are going our mind is going to react uh, in, in, uh, in an automatic way you know, think of like an instinctive way through craving to, to what happens yeah but where does it come from why yeah. is it so where does this come from when it's, right. when it's human nature on some right level? where does this come from yeah. It's because Adam and Eve ate the apple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, yeah, it, it, that question, though, is, 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 yes, that question is, where does it come from? Why are we this way? And that's a very good question. It's a very good thing to look at. And I don't want you to, get, to give you any simplistic answers, although uh, not a bad place to start would be to recognize that um, the delusion and the craving, for you as an individual, that's your karma. <coughs> I'm not talking about when you were born yet. I'm just saying right now. The delusion that you have and the craving that you have is your karma. And if we look backwards and say, okay, but every human being that's born ends up with the same delusion and the same craving. So it seems as though this is a karma that we've inherited. Right? And from, from the point of view of the way people look at karma, then, you know, they would say, oh, well, must be beings in the past lived in this same delusion and the same craving, and they didn't overcome it. And so when, when their five aggregates dissolved, the karma just kept going. And that's not, it's not an unreasonable way of looking at it. It's, it's a, in some ways, it's not a very satisfying way of looking at it, because you probably would like a better explanation than that. So, let's take a different approach. Okay? If we, 
first of all, we recognize that we can't really know ultimate reality. But we're limited with our human mind and with our human sense organs and with what we are able to do with our minds and our sense organs. We've tried to piece together a story about how this universe works, how this world works. And as we piece together that story, what we get is it's really quite a, 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 a fantastic story. Somehow or another, this universe came into existence. Um, Big Bang, whatever, you know. Doesn't matter, but somehow it did. And what we can piece together, the story that we've made from what we can piece together, is that from a totally undifferentiated mass of, of energy, somehow or another, that energy began to differentiate and organize itself. And so that from pure energy, there came to be matter and energy. And matter and energy began to organize itself. And so that in kind of an evolutionary process, till we have a universe with stars and galaxies, with suns and planets, <coughs> at least on this planet that we know for sure, but it seems likely on a whole lot of other planets, there's living organisms. And what we know about, or what, what we can piece together in the same story about where living organisms came from, is that uh, in the primordial ocean, somehow or another, matter, as a part of its evolution, you know, it went from being pure energy to differentiated forms of energy that eventually condensed into what we call subatomic particles and that condensed into atoms and molecules and everything else. And somewhere in this glorious process, at one point, some of that matter organized itself so it separated itself from everything else in that primordial sea. We had this first, we had this first cell, this first thing, which had the unique properties that it could reproduce itself, maintain itself, feed itself. And we are the continuation of that. So the ignorance that we are subject to is to experience ourselves as separate entities. And the craving that we are subject to is the, in the inescapable logic of matter and energy, once you're a separate self, you have to, you, you have to get what you need to perpetuate, to save and perpetuate yourself and protect yourself from destruction. And so, from the sense of separate self, the craving and the actions out of craving seem to be automatic. They seem to be, you know, they're, they're, they're as natural to the process of the universe as anything else that we can glean from. Gravity, you know, anything. You could pick in any natural process. The evolution of the universe seems to inherently require that for beings like ourselves to be what we are, for human beings to be with, with our amazing capacities and these wonderful and terrible things that we've done, we have to have, we had to have this kind of delusion and we had to be driven by craving. You know, it's just like, uh, we can't, you know, it seems like the only way that we could have the kind of physical world we do is for things to be 
electrically charged positive and negative, and they have certain kinds of other physical properties, mass and so forth, that and for there to be the different kind of forces that interact uh, in these particles, in order for matter to be at all. And it seems like for a human being to be in this universe, that just had to happen. So now all of a sudden, this delusion and this craving isn't just some kind of a curse. It isn't some kind of original sin. It's something that's inherently a part of everything, of the whole. It is a manifestation of ultimate reality, the ultimate nature. Right? And we are the wonderful, glorious result of it. Um, looked at from one point of view. Don't you agree? Human beings are amazing things, right? I mean, I, I was just marveling a few hours ago that what we've done, you know, we we, we make all this stuff and we do all this stuff and it's like, wow. And we work together and we cooperate and we make all these things happen and we transform the world and, you know, I mean, setting aside that we're destroying it at the same time. <laughs> leaving the value judgments out of it. We leave the value judgments out of it. Wow, is this ever an amazing thing? And we're part of it. And what's made that happen <coughs> is, is it's, it's just, you just think of it as just a part of the natural process of evolution, just another expression of the natural laws of the universe. Now, now it's time to bring some value judgments into it. As individual human beings, though, as individual human beings, feeling like we're separate selves, things aren't so good. Because now, well, feeling like you're a separate self, you worry about what's going to happen to you, and maybe simpler organisms don't know they're going to die and don't have to worry about it, but it bothers us a lot, right? Not only that, we do have a lot of suffering in our life. You know, uh, we have craving. Craving made us what we are, but craving makes us suffer. I mean, this is one of the things that, the, this is really foundation, foundational thing that the Buddha realized and that he taught, is being the kind of beings that we are, <coughs> ignorant of the way things really are, and afflicted by craving, we're going to suffer. There is just no way around it. That's the price of this glorious thing that the universe has created, the human being. The price of the human mind is that human beings suffer. Now, the wonderful thing is that we have the capacity to end our suffering. You might ask that question. You ask the question, where does the ignorance and craving come from? And it seems to be just a necessary part of how we could be. We couldn't be if there weren't that. The even more intriguing question is, how does it come to be that once we are, that we also have this capacity that we can transcend this? We can transcend the ignorant view of self, and we can overcome this this inner drive, this craving. And we can actually come to a place where instead of selfishly inflicting so much damage and harm on other beings in the world, we can actually come become vehicles of compassion, love, service. We, so not only are we happy, but we not only can we become 
happy and free from suffering. I mean, the pain is inevitable, but when there's no more suffering, pain is just pain. Right? Um, death is inevitable, but when you realize that, 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 that your separate selfhood is an illusion, it doesn't really matter anymore. It doesn't become the cause of suffering. We can transcend it. That's the real amazing question. How did that happen to be? But you know, it seems like to be as amazing as we are in the one sense, somehow what came with it was this other capacity. Um, why does craving exist? You know, why, if you look, if you look at a, a, a mouse or, or a deer or, or a cockroach or a fish or something like that, if it wasn't, if these organisms weren't driven by craving, they couldn't survive, much less reproduce. And evolve and go from being and, and give rise to more sophisticated beings than themselves. Um, what makes us so successful is that we have a kind of mental capacity. We can we can discern the laws of causality that operate in the world, and we can project into the future and. We can make things happen. We have we have these abilities, and, and all of it's been a result just by tiny increments of, of a process that's been going on in, in all of life. But at the same time that it has brought us to this point of being able to do so much, it's also brought us to the point of being able to transcend our biological nature. We can free ourselves of craving, and we have an intellectual ability. See, what is it that makes us so remarkable compared to baboons, the chimpanzees? It's that we can use our minds, and through inference, we can discern things about how ultimate reality works. We can't know; we can never know ultimate reality. And as a matter of fact, you know, as you heard me say before, your view, uh, the, the view that we hold. The highest, most refined view of reality that any human beings hold is has is, is got to be an utter ridiculous and, and uh, totally incomplete approximation of the of the reality that it attempts to model. But but nevertheless, we are capable. We can't know ultimate reality, but we can know things about it. We can know, for example. Uh, the truth of impermanence, which really is the truth that there are no things, there's only process. We can discern by examining our own experiences, we can discern that the ultimate reality that lies beyond the boundary of our senses uh, doesn't consist of separate entities like we view ourselves. It's one continuous, inseparable, indivisible whole. It's because that we can tap into that knowledge and that understanding that we can transcend the human condition. That is exactly the point I'm asking. Why can't we why can't we call it also human nature, our possibility, our chance and our opportunity to transcend? Why do we use human nature always so negative? Like when something goes wrong, oh yeah, I, I'm human. That's an excuse. Well, now that, right? yes. Now that so, is that is a failing. I think that is because we so we are so 
immersed in our failings that now we've added to it this other failing of uh, we see our own nature in its worst sense. But I mean, that's understandable. You look at the world and all these people driven by by, by greed and, and hatred, by desire and aversion, creating all this unnecessary harm for each other, for every other kind of organism we share the, the planet with, or the planet as a whole. Does anybody read Doonesbury on, uh, on the computer, on the internet? You do? Yeah. So lately, just last week. <laughs> I always read the Doonesbury cartoon. I don't read a newspaper, haven't for years. But I <laughs> Uh, and they have these little blurbs there, quotes from people. Uh, I'll just say what. And the one, the one for the last few days has been uh, something about it. the amazing thing about the planet Earth is that when you poke holes in it, it, it leaks oil and gas. <laughs> the, the, the wonderful thing about the planet Earth, yeah. and poke holes in it. And <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, you know, we look at what we're doing, and we see that here we are, you know, hell-bent on disaster for ourselves and all these other organisms, and we can't seem to stop ourselves. And that's the, that's the side of human nature that, that is most obvious. Unfortunately, I think there's only a tiny, tiny percentage of the people on this planet who have any inkling of what the other part of human nature is, of what our potential is. The fact that we can, that we don't have to drive ourselves into extinction through this, this you know, uh, really what, what our curse is, is that we've got the same ignorance and we've got the same craving that uh, baboons and donkeys and horses and dogs and cats and ducks and geese and orioles and everybody else has. But we've also got this additional intellectual capacity. So the combination, at least from this point of view right now, looks like disaster sooner. <laughs> but the very same combination, we can use our minds, we can transcend uh, our, our biological legacy, and we could perhaps save ourselves, whether we will or not, I don't know. But part of the problem is that most of the people on this earth are not aware of this other aspect of human nature. They don't know that it's possible. That's what I'm here to tell you. It is possible. You can overcome suffering, and you can cease to be the cause of suffering. For only nine ninety-five. <laughs> <laughs> grandson, which is a joy in so many ways, born in December, and so he's the first uh, brand new human being since my own children were born a lot of years ago that, that I've gotten to watch like from the very first, and um, so I've been, you know, I've been enjoying him as a way of inquiring about all this, and I've been kind of trying to get a sense of how his craving and his sense of unity and oneness differs from an adult, for instance. Mm -hmm. And yeah. what I find is, like, I wholly admire him when he is craving every iota of his being is craving. It's rare in adults. We're usually ambivalent, right? <laughs> and, um, and I kind of wonder, in our practice, 
it seems to me that his journey will be right now, he's not a separate self. He does right. not distinguish himself as separate. And he melts into whoever's holding him. And when he wants his mother, he howls with all of his being. And um, he's just such an expression of, mm-hmm. of nature and instinct. Um, and I wonder if that, that wholehearted, single-pointedness, 100% of our whole being, that's part of what our practice can return us to later. Isn't it? In, yeah. in some way? It returns us to certain aspects of that. Like, you know, in, in the developmental process of a child, um, all of these things, you know, the sense of self develops, the sense of ego develops, uh, the sense of this is, this is mine. Uh, there's, a, there's a point in a child's life where they discover the possibility of lying. You know, it's an amazing thing. They discover the possibility. They discover the distinction between mine and not mine, and uh, that leads to certain kind of behaviors, but there's also a certain point where they discover the idea of stealing. I, I know this is mine. I know that's yours. I know that you know that that's yours. And I know that you'll get mad at me if I take it, but I'll wait until you're not looking, and then I'll take it. <laughs> you know, and, and so what we want to go, we want to go back in a certain sense. We'd like to get back to the place where we don't think in some of those kinds of ways and we don't behave in some of those kinds of ways. But it's not just a dialing back. It's rather, it's more like a little getting, you know, it's that we make our journey and come back to where we began, but totally transformed, in a totally, totally new way. So we make our journey through ignorance and delusion to wisdom and understanding, we we become we become beings driven by very 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 simple craving to very complex and elaborate craving that allows us to potentially manipulate and exploit thousands of other organisms, human or otherwise, in order to meet our ends. You know, we go through that and we come back from that. To a place where there's no longer any need to do that at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, a couple of questions. I, I think you referred to the um, I remember when I had uh, my child children, um, there was a, I would have noticed disagreements. And what you seem to be suggesting is that we're hardwired in a way. Mm-hmm. And the word craving, or maybe in Pali it's different, but has a certain value connotation. Mm-hmm. It's, it has a negative. But in fact, the hard wire for the baby is kind of a metamorphosis of, of movement, of, of differentiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, craving is a little hard. Now, for example, and many of the people here who are writers or in the creative field, is it craving that they um, experience that aha of the creation of what they're doing? Or is there some, something that we can, I don't know, the play of words, is it, that, is it, does that create suffering? Well, we have to distinguish between, between craving and there, there is a a positive side to intentionality. There's a positive side to, you know, if you if you have the wholesome wish for somebody else's well-being, 
That's completely different than craving. So, and, and that is one of the things that's easy to misunderstand. In language does this to us, in the English language particularly. Right. Okay. The desire, that means the desire for enlightenment, oh, it must be a bad thing. You know, the desire to become a compassionate person, well, that's a desire, there must be something wrong with it, but that's not true at all. Those are, those are different. Craving. Craving is this kind of hardware thing, and it, it has to do with meeting my needs, and meeting my needs at the expense of anything else. So it's kind of, you're kind of suggesting it's kind of a primary function. Yeah. And that as we differentiate, hopefully, right. human beings will be able to function on a more higher level, and secondary level, etc., which is the right. part Yes. The, the good news, and the news that hasn't gotten around yet, is that we, you know, we're not stuck there. It can, we can overcome that. It is possible to transcend that. We have within us the capacity to transcend that. I like to think of that as Buddha nature. Okay, We have human nature, but we also have Buddha nature. Now, part of our human nature is that we are capable of revealing our Buddha nature. So is, is the fraction of people who are, who are uh, becoming, acquiring wisdom or striving, striving for it and understanding, is that increasing in your view? Uh, it's increasing in my immediate environment. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, say, I, I look for every glimmer of hope that it's increasing elsewhere as, as, as well. You know. you know, Technomon has this wonderful, uh, um, I guess, a metaphor process that we have there are seeds in the form of seeds we want and we have these choices of watering these seeds so called good seeds and bad seeds right. and the whole process of mindfulness is to be able to be mindful of the destructive seeds and not to water them and the image of the creative streams to water them with mindfulness and just that type of metaphor. But the hard wiring from what I understand, is it, he, I guess in Buddhism there's more of an acceptance or fits into our kind of neuropsychology today that we are hardwired. Yeah. We, we are, except, you know, hardwired, there's some ways we're hardwired that can't change, but that's, that is something that we're hardwired in a way that can't change. We can develop the intention to water the good seeds, uh, to not water the bad seeds and to have the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> Nick? Just maybe you could clarify when you or, or some, be rather some theoretical, fairly enlightened being yeah. gets hungry, yeah. so there's some kind of signal in the body, but does craving arise or is there just this signal and you like have to mentally remind yourself, oh, that means I'm supposed to eat? Or is there still instinct without craving? I'm just a little confused what actually happens to those instinctual processes. A Buddha certainly gets hungry, right. feels hungry. Right. And a Buddha certainly knows that, you know, this body needs food, I better do something about it. But if craving were a part of that process, then the more hungry a person gets, the more desperately willing they become to do, or they become to do whatever is necessary to fulfill that need, regardless of the impact that it has on somebody else. Now, Buddha, 
a Buddha rather would treat the needs of his own body as being totally equally and on par with the needs of the other beings around him. Whereas craving would blind the Buddha to that kind of balanced view and say, no, the needs of this, this body are more important than the needs of these other beings. So would, would the Buddha stop eating and send his food money to Africa then? Well, um, the Buddha would, well, no reason why the Buddha would necessarily, if the Buddha did that, then the Buddha's own body would die. Right, but he's so in America. Would, would, would the Buddha <laughs> take his neighbor's money, uh, neighbor's grocery money, and let his neighbor starve to death so he could send the money to Africa? Would that make sense to the Buddha? Right. And the point is that he's going to treat his own body, the needs of his psychophysical entity, with exactly the same degree of respect that he would treat the neighbors or the people in Africa. He would try to find he would try to find the, the, the best solution in terms of the reality of the situation. It's almost like loving I don't know if love is the right word, but would you argue that loving the things around you doesn't necessarily mean that you are completely um, a verse of love for your own self. Well, that's right. If you but see yourself, self is a bad word. But. Yeah. No, no, it really is. <laughs> it's 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 a good word in this. Your instance. body, whatever. Because if you to deny yourself, think less of yourself, uh, as compared to others, that is a kind of selfishness. That's a kind of ego. Uh, that that's. You know, the, in the in the conceit, there's the conceit of thinking you're better than somebody else. There's a conceit of thinking you're, you're worth less than somebody else. They're both conceits. And the third kind of conceit is believing that you are a separate self. So a Buddha would not have any of these kinds of conceit. Would not think that his needs were more important than anybody else's. Would not think that his needs are less important than anybody else's. Would not, in fact, see himself and his needs as being separate from the larger whole that he's a part of. Hence the illusion of that person's hungry, I'm hungry too, my needs supersede his, vice yeah. versa, etc. That's the usual way, my needs supersede his. Uh-huh. Yeah. If he starves to death, I'll eat him afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between pain and suffering? Well. Suffering comes from the mind. Pain is an unpleasant physical experience. And most of the time, we are incapable of distinguishing pain and suffering because when we experience an unpleasant physical sensation, when we experience pain, our mind resists, and so we suffer on top of it. So most of the time, not all of the time, and anybody that reflects a little bit will realize that, oh, there's been times when Pain and suffering has been quite easy to distinguish in their life, in certain circumstances. But most of the time, they're so intertwined that a person's first reaction is pain and suffering are the same thing. Part of the work that you have to do is to disentangle these two and to realize that the mind's reaction to an unpleasant situation is what creates suffering. The unpleasantness of the situation is just the unpleasantness of the situation. 
So a physical sensation that's painful is painful. But if you can separate your mind's resistance to it, and that's what it is, it's the resistance. When you get a migraine headache, what makes you so miserable is your resistance to the sensation of pain. If you've got a migraine headache, you might find that for just a few minutes, you can just surrender to it. And for those few minutes, it still hurts, but all that misery and suffering is gone. The problem is we can't do that for long. We are so conditioned to resistance, put differently. We're so resistant to, we're so conditioned to craving that we can't help but crave things be different. We can't help but crave the pain goes away. And that resistance is what turns that pain into suffering. You know, and, and Shinzen puts it beautifully, pain times resistance equals suffering. So you got one unit of pain and 10 units of resistance, you got 10 units of suffering. But the thing is that if you've got 100 units of pain and zero units of resistance, you have zero suffering. And that's the fact that the Buddha discovered. And that's what the first noble truth is about. That, that pain is inevitable, but suffering is completely optional. You can multiply the pain by zero and have no suffering. Shula Dasa, how is that on a bigger scale? I cannot imagine to tell the parents in Newtown who loves their children that suffering is an option. No, the, the time to tell them that would be long, long before something like that happened. <laughs> now, if, if those parents were, were Buddhas, then they would need not suffer the same way they do. They'll feel the pain. There is an emotional pain associated with loss. And uh, when, when the Buddha's chief disciples died, shortly before he did, he experienced the, the pain and the grief of the loss, but he didn't suffer because of it, because of the wisdom that he had. So that means you let go in the moment, you experience the pain, but the suffering would mean holding on to it? And then when right. you as a child, you have to let that go? Yes, anybody who has ever grieved knows this. Think, think of what, what happened as you got over the grief. There began to be moments where you thought of the loved one that was gone. You thought of the loss. And you were in a place of acceptance. And while you're in that place of acceptance, you didn't suffer. And those instances gradually become more frequent and last longer until you have overcome your grief and you get on with your life. So we all have these experiences. They're not something that's unimaginable and so far from our own experience that, that you, you, know, you have to be a Buddha to understand. They're all a part of our experience, but the, the question is, how do I make that the place I go, rather than a place that I only get to visit momentarily? Okay. Question has to do specifically with that, with uh, if everything is impermanent, if moment to moment things yeah. change, wouldn't enlightenment be impermanent? Wouldn't that change? Wouldn't it come and go and fluctuate? From a purely semantic point of view, uh, it would seem that way. But enlightenment is actually an absence. 
It's an absence of it's an absence of delusion and it's an absence of craving. It's a wisdom and it's a wisdom that brings about an absence. I mean, is that sound might sound a little too circular. But really what you're asking is is Does this wisdom that ends suffering and makes us into compassionate beings, can it be lost? That's really what you're saying. Can it disappear? Okay. Yeah. And there is a process in this. And you attain this wisdom by increments. And incrementally along the way, yes, you, you, you go through stages where it is lost. Can be lost and it is lost repeatedly and it's recovered again. But there is a there is an ultimate endpoint. Now it's not really an endpoint. It's one of these, it's one of these, you know, there's where the word asymptotic comes in. It's one of these one of these things that you can approach forever, right? You get closer and closer uh, to where uh, there's no more falling back from this. But you see, enlightenment is is defined as as involving multiple you know, multiple stages. And the first stage of enlightenment, you become free of a lot of suffering. Uh, not not all kinds of suffering, but you become free of a lot of suffering and you stay free of it for quite a long time. But you lose that. You forget, you slip, you fall back. You fall back until your suffering makes you aware of the wisdom that you have, and then you regain you, you regain gain that again. And that happens repeatedly. And as you're going along, yeah, you, you lose this less often and less easily and, and less completely. So in that regard, yeah, it's it's not something that happens once, and once it happens, that's it forever. But at least at least according to the teachings we have from the Buddha, there is a point of the attainment of the Arhatsa where there's never any more suffering. For the rest of your life? For the rest of your life. And so, is that if, if you... What's that? Now, I know you keep saying we can achieve this point. That's not so. That's not a theoretical place that you're almost constantly working towards. Almost like you know, some people I would assume won't get there in this life, and you know that could be a little bit. I suppose if you're on the way, you're not going to be bummed about that because that's right. <laughs> no matter where you are, no matter where you are in the path, it's better than where you came from. Exactly. <laughs> no matter where you are, and the thing is. Say you become, say you, you think that you become an arhat, a fully enlightened being at age 35, and you never experience a falling back from that until you're 75 years old, and then you have a lapse that lasts a day. You say, oh, okay, I guess I was almost there, but there's a little bit more. <laughs> but still. 30 solid years and then only a, a, a day of falling back into suffering, you know, uh, is it like you're going to say, ah, 
This whole thing is a crock. <laughs> Oops. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, I watch a lot of her, and uh, she has a lot of interesting people on. And she says um, that uh, on the road to enlightenment, you have a lot of aha moments. And then when you get to enlightenment, it's aha. But my aha moment was when I started studying Buddhism was um, on the journey was taking responsibility for my actions, yeah. but not taking the responsibility of other people's actions. Yeah. And so that was an aha moment for me. And so to me, that's like that's on the path to enlightenment. Yeah, is it is. To that, the law, further along your up your path, you get more aha moments. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the Buddha said, and I repeat on his behalf very often, <laughs> this is, is a path that's good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. It only gets better. Right? It only gets better. And sometimes people say, well, you know, um, well, what, what good is it if you don't get enlightened until just before you die? Well, at least you got there. Well, yeah, at least you got there. But the thing is, things would have definitely been getting better than they were, just for you to get to the place where you got enlightened the day before you, were, you died. And uh, Alpo Shinzen again, he was, uh, this is the thing, he has a discussion that he posted on the internet. I don't remember what the original question was, the topic, but I remember his answer very clearly. He said, that if I could be guaranteed 20 more years of wealth, health, and sexual prowess, and lots of opportunity to exercise it, or only one more day of what I have now, I'd choose that day, no question. And, and that's, that's the way it is. If you're on the path, path, you're going to experience the rewards of the path, and the longer you stay on the path, it also accelerates. So it gets, it gets better faster. And Is it all roses, though? What's that? Is it all like spring roses? I'm sure it's hard. Right? <laughs> it's all, Is it all roses? I'm sure it's hard. Right? Well, actually, it's the world that's hard, and it's 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 not it's not yet having transcended your worldly nature that is the only part that's not roses. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's really there, there's really nothing about the path itself. It, I so it. I think would then be true to say that suffering that you have on the path is at least no greater than the suffering you'd have off the path, not being on the path? Yes, yes. That's a very good way of putting it. You are not going to suffer more on the path than you would off the path. But it, it can distill more, right? So instead of... Uh, 20 units a month, you might get 10 units in one day. That's very true, but it doesn't happen until you can handle it. Sometimes. So what would it mean to not be able to handle it? So, <clears throat> I guess... Uh, there's a bunch of people who would maybe disagree with Buddha on the middle of the path being all that good. 
that, uh, it can, you know, uh, lots of accounts of being terribly unpleasant and uh, d destructive of your external life because the emotions are coming up at a level that you weren't well trained enough to handle. Well, that is exactly as you said. That's like getting it in a day instead of spread over a month. And one thing is that's not necessary. That only happens when people follow a particular kind of path. But what it does is, yeah, it, it basically concentrates the suffering that you would have experienced anyway over a longer period of time into a shorter period of time. And it does have the reward that on the other side of it, you're, you're free of that. You've, you've done your path. But um, I, I, I can't say with certainty, but to my knowledge, no one has ever gone insane or died as a result of the things that arise directly from the practice of the path. Jack Cornfield says about once a decade, actually, somebody does die from it in his, uh, his area. Well, I'd, I'd like to know how he decides that if they died from that or if they died from the lack of that. I mean, one of the problems here is nothing personal to any of you. The people who are attracted to spiritual paths tend to be hyper-neurotic and have more problems than the <laughs> And so, if you take that into account, the problems within communities following bona fide spiritual paths uh, are are much lower than the expectation on you know, based on the composition of those populations. <laughs> so, you told Tucker that there was a, there is a particular path of training that is this concentrator that will make you more liable to to evolve very quickly. Um, yeah. What's that called? So I don't. <laughs> I, I, I kind of would like to know how I missed that one. Yeah. Well, that's a question. I have tried to figure out what is the difference between the paths that produce side effects and the ones that they don't. Two main things have stood out for me. One is is that the paths that produce this painful dark night experience. Uh, Downplay, ignore, or even vilify the the the, uh, the cultivation of samatha, which is joy, tranquility, and equanimity. Okay, they're they're called dry insight paths. That's one thing. The other thing is, if you look at those paths, they also don't appropriately address or are not conducive to strong insights into no self. So what happens to people on this path? They come along and really entrenched in their belief in themselves as a, as, as a separate self they think they are. And then they start confronting impermanence. They start confronting emptiness. They start confronting the inevitability of suffering in the human condition. And it's like, oh my God, I, you know, I, I, I'm in hell. And there's no way out. You know, I, the separate self, and in, in this world, in this, in this empty, impermanent world where 
nothing that I, I can cling to nothing. I can find no security anywhere. There is no hope. And the mind's reaction come from the deepest level of your subconscious mind is despair. Oh my God, where am I? And there's no way out. On the other hand, a path that familiarizes a person with the idea that I'm not separate. I'm not separate self, I think I am. And steers them towards the kind of experiences and insights that validate that, that make them see over and over again. Oh yeah, you know, that really is true. I'm really not that separate. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Then they come to this point, and once again, it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> they sail right through. Those are the two main differences that I can see. So there's, but I was, see the path that you are illustrating for us appears to be one of the gradual ones that you, you don't get concussed. Um, the, the one that you were talking about, this, this shortening thing, what would it be about trying to confront dry insight as a self that would abbreviate itself? Well, only thing it abbreviates, is, only thing it condenses is suffering. Okay, so don't mistake, we're not, okay. it's not a faster path. Okay. You don't get from here to there faster, although that's something that would be, you know, there's no, the, the only way you could demonstrate that one path was faster than another is to have, somehow have two identical, totally identical beings follow separate paths. I don't know, new, new, new bit of uh, identical twin research here. Yeah, I was going to say it's a heck of a twin study. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and not only that, you know, you even put two identical twins on the same path, and they aren't going to necessarily follow the same degree of diligence or have the same experiences. So, I find absolutely no reason to believe that any of these paths is of necessity quicker than the other. But absolutely, the path that, that uh, Tucker is talking about concentrates a lot of suffering into a short period of time. But I don't know that I, I don't know if there's a payoff for that. You don't know if there's a payoff. No. I, as, and as a matter of fact, see, the Buddha taught samatha, and Buddha taught no self. The Buddha didn't teach dry insight. He taught, you know, the reason they call it dry insight is because it lacks the lubrication of joy, tranquility, and equanimity, the lubricating quality. And if you have a mind that's joyful, tranquil, and equanimous, you know, and you start confronting some really frightening truths for the evening, it's, a, it's, it's very unpleasant. Much better to have that soothing balm in place. Already. But the other thing, too, the, 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 the no-self part of it, if you're attached to self, a self in an impermanent, empty world, where everything, every every attempt to grasp onto something is bound to, it's like grabbing on a hot poker. That's depressing. That's really depressing. But if you don't see yourself that way, or if you don't, even if you don't see yourself that strongly that way, even if you see yourself that way but not as strongly, it's going to be a much easier ride. I, I just wanted to agree when you said that, that it wasn't productive. Uh, that. I went through that without a teacher, and I got stuck there for three years. Mm -hmm. And 
it's the only difficult experience I've ever been through that was not productive. Everything else that's unpleasant kind of builds some character and strength and wisdom. And if that had gone on for a month, I would have learned something. But it was like it was just a waste of time. Yeah. yeah. And and I don't know that the Dark Knight is ever really productive in anything other than the end of the Dark Knight. That's its major accomplishment. <laughs> it, it does have that effect of teaching you not like a uh, not to expect that meditation just going to make you happier and happier, uh, like letting go of what's going on in your mind because it's too unpleasant sometimes. But you can learn that in a couple hours, probably. <laughs> and that's how the Dark Knight ends: is is you reach a place of resignation that the only way out is to go forward. And a, a determination to to stop struggling, stop resisting, and to surrender to, to the path. Anyway, the bell has rung. <laughs> so this was a very interesting discussion. I'm glad we had it, and uh, we shall we shall continue two weeks from tonight. We'll begin to delve into the territory of what it means to cultivate and practice our right intention, right, right motivation. Change the way that we view the world and the way that we react to the world through actual practical things that we can do. Okay? So until then, and please do come back. I look forward to seeing you then.